Welcome to the Minimalist Vegan Podcast, a place where it explores what it means to live with less stuff and more compassion. Hello, my name is Michael O'Fane. I'm joined by my wife, Marsha. Hi. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the ocean and fishing and a whole bunch of things related to that topic that have been circulating through our minds. Yes. But before we get into that... Um, before we dive in... <laughs> oh <God. laughs> uh, yeah, that, that wasn't Sorry. bad. Um, any updates over the last couple of weeks? Well, we've both turned 33 in the yes. last few couple of weeks. So, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. We had some pretty good birthdays. We're both, we're 12 days apart. So, Michael's 12 days older than me, born in the same year. We've had some nice birthdays, enjoyable moments. And, yeah, it's, we've kind of delayed this podcast because we watch Seaspiracy like a lot of people have. And it just was kind of the catalyst for us to just wake up a little bit more to what's happening in our oceans and to dive deeper into that world and Mm. really uncover some of the things and a lot of the things that we had no idea was happening. Um, I think the ocean kind of gets a bit of a, you know, people turn a blind eye to it. They don't really talk about it too much. I notice even in the vegan movement, it's more so about land animals and what the exploitation is going on there. But, you know, there's trillions of sea life dying every year for us to be able to satisfy our taste buds. So it's definitely something that we need to start talking about more. And I think because they are underwater and we don't really see them um, and we can't relate to them as we can you know, probably land animals in some ways that we just disregard them. So I think that we wanted to do this podcast episode justice and we wanted to come from it from a more educated and well-rounded perspective rather than just what the documentary talked about. And, you know, like even things that are just happening in our own backyard here in Tasmania, which we had no idea about. So it was definitely an eye-opener and we're both much more educated and well-informed for it. So Okay, cool. Well, where, where should we start with it then? I think maybe do we want to just maybe break down the, the positioning of this documentary first sure. and this film and, um, and how it's been received so far? Because it's been out for a couple of weeks at the time of recording this podcast, but... Um, it is a Netflix original. The film was directed by Ali. Uh, what was his last name? Yep, Ali Tabrizi. Um, so he's he's a British filmmaker, and it was produced by Kip Anderson. So if you're familiar with Cowspiracy, um, he directed that documentary, and he was the producer for Seaspiracy. So you can see how the name and the naming terminology sort of carried over, and. Um, it's been received quite well from from the general public's eye. It, it's been top ten, and in some cases, in the top three on Netflix in Australia and UK and and the United States, and I'm sure in other regions as well. And not even just in the documentary section, just overall That's movie right. and you know what's what's most popular in Netflix at the time, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, and it's a eighty six percent Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, which, which is pretty good. As Michael knows. always goes to. <laughs> 
what's the rating on Rotten Tomatoes oh, yeah. before we watch anything. I'm like, dude, just let Look, it go. It's not, um, <laughs> it's not religion. It's not like absolute, likely accurate every time, but I have found that it saved me um, some time. With some, and sometimes it has and, not. And sometimes it hasn't, yeah. <laughs> but uh, for what it's worth, it's on 86% Rotten Tomatoes. And yeah. look, I, as, as someone who, like Marsha, much, she loves watching documentaries. I mean, I'm you, not, yes and no. Not like a documentary buff or anything. No, like I'm not passionate about every documentary that's out there. And, and I haven't actually, watched no, documentaries you know do, in a really long actually, time. Actually, I do watch I, I am I just like random documentaries like you know yeah. the story behind the Beatles or the story of uh, <laughs> you just a really Sega or, or, or Nintendo or just random things that comes on yeah but I suppose the documentaries that you might have an interest in are normally um, like heavy topics and well, vegan or health oriented yeah and I find that a lot of them are quite same same boring not just boring <laughs> not like it's not engaging. And um, he has but, he has snoozed off on a, quite a few. Yeah. I end up just watching it on my own or nudging him, and it's just like, dude, wake up! If I want deep sleep, put on a really <laughs> boring health documentary. Um, but I think with Seaspiracy, it it's it had that energy. It felt like a blend between sort of well, new age was... indie documentary films film style on netflix and a little bit of that youtuber 4k drone footage action and a going bit of on. blockbuster type of you know a bit of theater yeah in the storytelling was. and yeah. it was you know i must say it was like it did push things to the extreme yes and there was a lot covered in that hour and a half yes so I don't think he went into too much detail in many areas because there is like, you know, there would we watched an interview with him and he said that, you know, he could have done a docu-series on this, but no one's going to watch yeah. so many smaller episodes on no. the ocean. So I want something dense and and look, and that's what opened it up to a lot of criticism which we'll cover later. Yeah. But but I think you're right. There's there's only so much you can cover in 90 minutes, but I appreciated it because it was like every second mattered, you know mm. what I mean? It was moving along. Mm. Um it's kind of easy to watch. It's mm. beautifully shot. Yeah. So if you if you're someone like me who likes engaging um <laughs> Not visuals, yeah. content. <laughs> uh, it's a really good one for that as well. And I think it's just a look Overall, vegan or not, whoever you are, I think it's a really interesting, well shot and put together movie even, you yep. know, like there's no harm in watching it because you, whatever, even if you take away 10% of what was being said and what was being shown, you have walked away with something useful and tangible and you're better off for it. So yep. yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think... At the end of the day, I, I, the the way I think the the directors intended it to work is to start a conversation because mm. you have marine biologists, you have researchers of the ocean talking about biodiversity. Uh, like this has been something that's been ongoing for decades, right? But they're all sitting in labs putting together research papers and it's, again, it's pretty dry stuff that's not reaching the masses. Yeah. So... I understand that they're feeling a little bit hard done by because maybe, you know, um, they don't agree with some of the facts presented or how the fisheries industry was presented to the general public through this documentary. Or some but of the, the non-for-profit organisations. That's right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, um, what this documentary did for us was, 
like we didn't buy in too much to some of the hard hitting stuff because we know that having things a little bit sensationalized really sort of shakes people like someone is watching this really shake them um, on the other side of the screen to sort of take action or think about it and that's what it did for us it got us to then start our journey of researching the the i suppose the fundamentals of exploitation in our waters and and i think that's how it was intended Mm. Uh, i don't think it was ever meant to be this be all and or resource a textbook Mm. It's just so meant to it's, shake it's, people it's up. It's just meant it's to shake things up. It's meant to make them question what they're doing and, you know, how we're going about saving our oceans. That's and, right. Yeah. And I hope to all the researchers out there uh, in this field, it, it, it starts to shine a light on mm. your work and your research, mm. not the other way around. Yeah. Um, because I think as we get through this conversation more, we'll see that I think everyone's generally pretty aligned in terms of what needs to happen. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of concerns here. So, well, unless you're in the commercial fishing industry, yeah, you yeah. won't. <laughs> yes, that's right. But look, we yeah, we we haven't. This is not going to be a super structured conversation. There's a bit of information we want to share, um, but a couple of things I know we want to touch on is the basics of the food chain in our waters, uh, because that that really is a foundational knowledge that we all need to sort of understand the impact of fishing. Mm. Um, And then we want to look at the impact of fishing from, I suppose, a commercial aspect and even recreational as well, because a lot of people are not talking about, I suppose, fishing as a hobby and maybe some of the impact that might have as well. And if you really want to go a bit further, I did write an article on this and published it last week. That's why there was a delay in the podcast, because... We feel that we just wanted to get some clarity on our thoughts first through writing. So if you want to check out that article, it will be in the show notes, which will be theminimalistvegan.com forward slash 059. So uh, we'll link to all of the uh, resources and including the article and other things that we've come across in preparation for this conversation. So anything else you want to say about the documentary before we go on? Um, because we're not going to really reference it anymore. No, I think, look, just take it with a grain of salt and know that not all the facts are correct in there and that it is pushed slightly to the extreme. But again, in 2021, you need the extreme for bigger measures to be taken and for people to take more action. So I think that that's kind of where we're at with our opinion on it. I think it's an important message and I think they've done an exceptional job. But yeah, the package is there beautifully. are some, you know, some things in there that you kind of do go, oh, okay, wow, that's intense. Yep. Let's see if that's actually true. Yep. Um, so, yeah. That's all I'll Awesome. Say. But go watch it if you haven't already. Yeah. We encourage you to watch it. It's definitely worthwhile. I mean, even people that we we know are now starting to question whether or not they should eat fish after watching it. And mm. people that absolutely love fish and it's a big part of their diet are now scratching their heads going, what am I going to do now? Mm. Which is great. You know, like it's an important conversation to have. And at the end of the day, we're both vegan, so... It's a logical step for us to want to say stop eating fish altogether, but we know that that's not always possible. Yes. So, with that said, let's dive in. Okay. <laughs> I think we should start off with explaining um, how the food chain works in the oceans. Yes. And why that's such an important component of ocean life and how damaging fishing 
in any aspect can be to that biodiversity and to ocean life. Yep. So in the article that Michael wrote, he linked to a very oversimplified breakdown of the food chain, but we will just sort of touch on it now. And if you want to go visit that uh, blog post, you can watch that video. But there's different levels to the ocean life. Did you, since you wrote the article and you have a really good understanding of how it all works? I mean, I do too, but you know. Well, I don't. Look, I'm not a marine of. biologist, <laughs> but but I suppose at a very uh, uh, surface level, like a broad overview is that the food chain begins with the primary producers. So they're the plant species at the bottom of the ocean. And the these plants include things like uh, seagrass and seaweed and algae and all the variations of these type of plants and and what they do is they absorb the sun's energy and they turn it into food through photosynthesis i can never say that properly um, they also convert the carbon dioxide and nutrients so things like decomposed bodies from dead sea life that sink to the bottom or feces and they turn that into organic matter as well the thing that I, that we both weren't aware of was that that these primary producers in plants are basically the engines behind the ocean's ability to absorb a third of the world's CO2. That's pretty insane. Yeah, a third, which is which is nuts if you think about it. So, yeah, we talk about the Amazon being the lungs of the planet, uh, but really it's, it's our oceans and the engine behind it is these plants. Um, these primary producers. So yeah, so it's something like the oceans absorbs four times as much carbon dioxide as the Amazon, and yet a lot of the time you hear the Amazon, as you just said, is the lungs of the planet. Yet no one really talks about yep. how important the ocean is. So four times more. Yeah. Yet we're we're not talking about it at all. That's right. Who would have thought? Right? Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that that's the primary producers of the waters, right? And I should just say that this food chain varies depending on which waters you're talking about, lakes or rivers versus different parts of the actual ocean. Mm. Um, but it's this is generally how it's structured. Um, from there, you've got your primary consumers. So these are a lot of your herbivores. These are like microscopic organisms like infant fish and coral and snails, sometimes even jellyfish. Uh, these are the ones that are primarily consuming these plants mm. um they're not all herbivores but most of them are so they're really really small animals there down the bottom from there you've got your secondary consumers and these these bunch are mostly carnivores at this point and they eat a lot of the primary consumers and other animals at this level if they if if they can um, and examples of these creatures include small fish, eels, and a lot of your crabs and prawns and lobsters as well. From there, we go up to the tertiary consumers. So these are your larger size carnivores, and they eat primarily the secondary consumers. So you see how it's like going down. So as you go up in the food chain, it eats like the level under That's it. That's right. Yeah. That's basically how it goes. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. The big fish gets eaten by a bigger fish and a bigger fish. And after that, it just keeps sort of scaling up from there. Um, so this group includes species like tuna, small whales, barracuda and small sharks, penguin seals and otters. Right. So this, these are your tertiary consumers. They're pretty well uh, towards the top of the food chain at this at this range. From there, you've got your apex predators. And these are the ones that um, we learn about at an early age in encyclopedias at school and uh, the ones that we're most fascinated by. And in examples, uh, and these guys are generally quite large, very fast, 
excellent hunters and uh you know full-on carnivores uh they include the likes of orcas great white sharks dolphins tiger sharks giant whales and crocodiles i just had to throw them in there because they they do sit at the top there and they eat their fair share of land animals as well <laughs> um whatever they can get their hands whatever on. they can get their hands <laughs> humans on. too yeah terrifying <laughs> crocodiles so these animals generally have really large appetites Mm-hmm. But they don't reproduce as quickly. Yeah. So And that's a really important thing this to This is a common thing in the chain, right? Yeah. Is uh the the smaller animals that are low on the food chain tend to reproduce more quickly mm. and the larger ones take a long a much longer time. Sometimes they need to get to a level of maturity in like in the teens yeah. um, before they're ready to reproduce. So that's a really important factor to what we're gonna talk about later. Um, but then the... You're missing one. I am missing <laughs> one because normally it stops there mm. at our apex predators. We think, okay, kill a whale, they're the top of the top. However, there's one on top of that and I made this up. I call them the <laughs> apex plus predators. I mean, that where... Or like apex pro. <laughs> like iPhone 2. pro. 2.0. Yeah, MacBook pro, apex pro. Oh, God. Um, and these are us humans and so obviously we're not part of the ocean life but when you're looking at the food chain we are part of that food chain yes but where it all goes to crap is when the apex plus predators start invading yes but 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 let's talk about of the ocean but let's talk about our skills because if i am a great white shark Mm. or a dolphin let's say and because uh, they're pretty intelligent and they had like they were profiling us as like a threat it's pretty terrifying mm. i mean if you look at our high-tech equipment <laughs> our ability to use innovative practices to capture whatever we want however we want at scale mm. in the trillions that's a pretty formidable predator yeah. Um, and i'd say that we are by far the most lethal weapons out there mm. so that just puts things into perspective, but you're right. How we influence this food chain is very significant because we generally influence every single level that we've talked about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. From the plants all the way up to the apex predators. Yeah. We, in some way, either are killing them or consuming them yeah. with our participation in the ocean. Mm. So, so as soon as you start like taking out a bigger portion of a specific species you see how that actually rocks and affects the rest of the food chain. Yep. And that's not something that too many people talk about is actually looking at the food chain and being logical about how it all works. Yep. So just explaining it even that way, it's like, well, you know, even if you want to go out and fish certain fish, well, you're taking the food away from another sea creature in some way shape or form so you're kind of disrupting that natural ecosystem and it's a it's a situation where you know you take away a, a secondary consumers you take away a food source from the tertiary consumers if they go hungry starve out and then they start dying off mm. which leads to less food for the tertiary consumers and well, they start the eating cycle. down the food chain That's which right. is not designed they go out for of them. order because yeah. they're trying to find food Mm. Uh, and then there's the imbalance mm. and there's a situation where death leads to way more death. Yeah. And that's the really scary thing about all of this. Mm. So when we talk about 
sustainable fishing, even though it's not really defined clearly, I think the intent behind it is to um, still be able to take fish and, and to be able to fish and feed people without depleting the ocean at these different levels of the food chain. So that it's the same year on year that's on right. year. Yeah. That, that, uh, that I think from our, what we've gathered from what yeah. uh, is the intent behind the goal behind what sustainable fishing is. So, mm. But then uh, again, how many billions of people are on this earth? And if everyone wanted sustainable fish, it's still unsustainable. Yeah, exactly right. To bring up the impact, I suppose, of some of, some of these practices and, and us fishing at this scale, um, we're talking again, uh, trillions upon trillions of, of ocean life are being fished every year. You know, we talk about bluefin tuna. Uh, bluefin tuna is something that comes up a lot in the fisheries conversation as an incredibly endangered species because of the delicacy, particularly in a lot of Asian countries and even around the world as well. But their population levels are down to 5%. So that's really terrifying. We're talking mm. about a apex predator. So when you think about it, so on broader terms when you're saying something is an endangered species or it's critically endangered anything less than 10 percent is classified as endangered yeah so five percent is critically endangered yep but meanwhile bluefin tuna sells for like up to five thousand dollars per pound because of how hard it is to access now because of how depleted the the species is so it's still very much driven by profit. And, and the scarcity, like the more exotic and scarce it right. is, I think people obviously are willing to pay top dollar for it. And it has this mystique about it, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Let's um, not go down that route. <laughs> and we, But that's just one example of many. I mean, there's 181 shark species, which are now critically endangered. Got 100,000 dolphins across Iceland, Norway, and Japan have been... Um, Killed every year. Killed every year. The n- numbers are just staggering. And, and uh, again, we really encourage you to do your own research, especially when it comes around to a specific type of fish that, or seafood you like to consume. Mm. I think that's a really good starting point to start to see. Um, you know, I know in Australia, there's a website, I forgot the name, but I'll link to it in the show notes that sort of shows you, it's like a rating system for different types of fish that you should consume based on their stock levels in your local area and where it comes from. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a really nice guide. And uh, like, for example, bluefin tuna is on the red. Do not touch, like do not eat this species or even tuna from this region mm. because it's incredibly depleted. Mm. Um, avoid that. While something like sardines, a smaller fish, they might say, yep, that's okay because it replenishes quickly. Uh, yeah, they reproduce a they lot reproduce faster. They reproduce a lot faster. So that might be a better option. So, so that's typically, like even just globally, that's probably one of the most sustainable fish that people can eat. If you're going to eat fish, sardines are probably one of the most, you know, that's yep. something that you should consider. And also because they are smaller, they have less chance of having plastic in them and also mercury levels because the longer the fish lives the more mercury there is in their system there you go so that's the food chain and that's um and that's how we can really mess it up (laughs) you know (laughs) um but i suppose okay then then from there you know i was reflecting on sea spiracy and even a lot of the backlash it had received and just a lot of commentary around this topic and i think that a lot of it is focused on poor practices in commercial fishing Mm-hmm. And we're, we're more specifically, wild caught fishing. Mm. Um, but there's also a lot of interesting practices in farm fishing as well. But do we just want to quickly run through anything? Is there anything that comes to mind that you wanted to touch on 
in, in commercial fishing in general? I mean, look, when it comes to commercial fishing, it becomes a very grey area, right? Mm. Because we don't know what's actually happening out there on the boats in the middle of the ocean, what they're catching, what they're saying that they're catching, what's happening. Um, and that can be a very scary thing to know that you can be catching all of this fish and everything else that's in the ocean but saying one other thing so it's not like land animals again a lot of people can come to your abattoir or your farm and can do an audit to say okay yes you're an organic farmer and or free range or whatever there's no certification of that kind when it comes to the fishing industry and if there is well there is well, there is, but then they're very, they can be quite corrupt as well. Yeah. So it doesn't actually give you any assurance that it can 100% say that it's either dolphin safe, that it's sustainably sourced. You know, there's, there's all of these things that float around, even just like, you know, us going down to our local supermarket yep. and looking at all of these labels on the canned tuna and local farm tuna and all of that, we were just a bit surprised that every single can had this label on it. Which label? The Dolphin Safe? The dot. Well, Poland Line, Dolphin Safe. Well, what? At least one. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, let's single... let's 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 back up for a second. Let's keep that thought with the um, description of like what we found at the supermarket, but to like. There are some different commercial fishing approaches and methods that what Marshall's alluding to is not being like, it's hard to audit and monitor. Mm. For example, one, one fishing, me- a very common fishing method is pursing. So this is like where you cast a huge net into the ocean, sometimes up to two kilometers long and 200 meters deep. Like these are huge nets and you try and catch... Like you're targeting a, a species of fish, but basically it's unavoidable to catch every other living organism that's in the vicinity that's just passing by that species you're trying to target as well. So by the time you sort of pull the drawstring on this thing and pull up all the fish onto the boat, you've got all sorts of fish from the food chain in that net as well. Not even um, just fish, just Sea, sea life. Sea life in general, yeah. right? When you catch life that you weren't intended to catch, um, that's known as bycatch. And up to 40% of all wild-caught fish um, is bycatch. So that's a, like almost half of it is bycatch um, using some of these methods. And it's like it's unavoidable, yep. you know, like the ocean's the ocean. It's We're not talking about fish farms here where yep. you can control the environment yep. and where you've literally put those fish into that particular part of the ocean yes that's right and and there are situations where uh, like we've seen examples from local documentaries where there was a concentrated school of sardines Mm. that they were able to catch using pursing but didn't have any bycatch in it you know so there are examples where it can be done but for a lot of the common foods that we eat again we're up to 40 percent is bycatch so this is unnecessary needless death Mm. Um, that were causing as a result of some of these fishing And that's not something that they will label on a can of tuna, for instance, or any type of other fish. Yeah, but I suppose what they're saying 
back to your example is that it's they're not using this method of fishing they're not using pursing or bottom trawling or you know what i mean they're not they're using pole and line instead to source this tuna on some cans it wasn't on some, all yeah cans. okay yeah but i think this is the thing like for, for me like i don't i'm i don't have i've never been fishing before in my life like i don't know how it works like my like when i think of fishing recreationally i think of the high-tech fishing rod that you get at your hiking shop or what, like your camping store or whatever down the road um, and then you go sit on the boat or on the on the ledge somewhere and you fish that way one by one that's my knowledge of fishing or maybe you use a spear you know what i mean or something like that but are you these, a caveman no, yeah exactly that's pretty inefficient but once you start actually understanding some of these methods and some are banned because they're so destructive to the ocean yet it's again it's so hard to monitor who's to say it's still not happening mm. because it's like it's highly inefficient like if somebody goes fishing on the weekend and they are a relatively skilled fisherman now i don't know the numbers exactly i'm just making this up but let's say you're reasonably skilled and you might be lucky to get bring home like three fish or something mm. or maybe a bucket of fish a whole afternoon like you spend all day out there yeah so if you need to catch trillions of fish to feed seven to eight billion people in the world, it's highly inefficient to have people catch fish in this way. Mm. So they implore these methods to, you know, it's economies of scale, to get as much stock as they can as quickly as possible. Mm. And that's why you get these other methods of fishing. So when they say pole and line, like, I mean, not even pole and line, but like when you're looking at fish or looking at purchasing or consuming fish, I think understanding what some of these methods are of fishing is really important because it's like you want to know where the fish is coming from. Like we went down to the local supermarket here in Tasmania, Australia, Tasmania, Australia, and we're seeing a whole like at least 30% of the fresh seafood was coming from like Thailand, Thailand and, Vietnam. and Vietnam. At least. At least 30%. Um, so I was like, that's interesting. Mm. Um, and then you want to know like how it was caught. Mm. And then it's like, that's really great to quantify how They're it was not caught. Know. Yep. And you also how it's farmed. Because they farmed. won't tell you if it's farmed or if it's that's wild right. caught. And you want to know what it is as well. Because like we're talking about the supermarket, you know, buying you know, buying a fresh fresh fish or canned fish, that's one thing. But then if you go out to a restaurant or a takeaway and you're ordering fish and chips as we call it here I, like i didn't even know what the hell flake was did you no growing up maybe maybe a lot of people know what flake is here in australia but as it turns out it's it's shark flesh that just proved that i didn't, I didn't even know what type of fish mm. was going into what i was ordering at a takeaway yeah so well there's no laws around it so yeah. they can say whatever they want and it's interesting because even before becoming vegan like i'd see atlantic salmon and I would never have thought that that was farmed. I no. would actually always think that it's come from the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. And that it was wild caught. Yeah. Whereas some of the biggest, well, actually the biggest salmon farms are based in Tasmania. And it's yeah. a half a billion dollar industry. And they're planning to, I think, about double it in the next decade as well. Okay. So it's just getting bigger and bigger because people's appetites and, you know, is this whole fish is healthy for you and you need your omegas and you need your good fats and 
protein and all of that sort of thing. So they try and promote, you know, like we've got fish ads on our television all the time, like yeah. swap, give chicken the night off and, and eat salmon instead. Yeah. Um, and that's a big ad campaign that's currently happening here. Absolutely. And even if you look at our own behavior, that advertising worked on even us because when before we were vegan and we, we primarily bought salmon, didn't we? Yeah. And some like barramundi and yep. I never bought prawns, but that that's a big thing in Australia. Yep. And a lot of it comes from Thailand. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So it's, uh, it's just real eye-opening to or see shrimp. That. Is it shrimp? Americans call them shrimp. Or is yes. that the same thing? Yes. Yeah. A type of shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, it's just really eye-opening to see that, like, just how little we know of the process mm. uh, and the supply chain. And again, there's, you know, there's a lot of, there'll be people who in the industry that would argue that, what do you mean? This is monitored. This is audited. And there are some really good practices in there. Um, that we follow, that we don't use these banned fishing methods like mm. pursing or trawling and, and things of that nature. But dredging. You're dredging. They but all sound terrible. <laughs> they do. But um, the stats show that a lot of these methods are still used. So mm. so that's what makes it really confusing for the consumer mm. because it's just hard. Like we know, we know as vegans, it's hard bloody buying shoes and tracing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and now like with fish, it's just completely like convoluted um mm-hmm. what that journey is to get to the point of purchase yeah so it, it just helps to understand some of these fishing methods particularly as we transition now to you mentioned a little bit about fish farming yeah and even what's happening in our backyards here mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit more about that practice because i mean before this research i didn't know too much about aquaculture or how it worked and i think in theory it sounded okay Mm. Do you know what I mean? In comparison to wild caught, mm. um, that was my perception. Yeah. But what have we found since? I think it's just like aquaculture in essence is like the ocean's view of factory farming. So if you're against factory farming, you should technically be against aquaculture and aqua farming because it's the same thing. So for instance, here in Tasmania, you've got some of the biggest farms of salmon, I think even in the world. And a lot of pristine areas are now, they're protesting not to let fish farming into those areas because they'll completely destroy the natural habitat. You know, people have gone out of business. There's been mussel farms that have lost their farms because of fish farming that was close by. Even just like the thought of, okay, so the process is, the same as it would be in normal, you know, you kind of... In land animals? In land animals, yeah. So the people that give you the up to a couple of week old fish that are like babies at the time, the way that they produce is they go out into the wild or they already have salmon on the farm specifically designed for extracting eggs and milt, which is like the male form of sperm. And they push, they literally like push them out of their system into a bucket. And then they have like this artificial. The eggs in the milk, yeah. Yeah. So they kind of do like an artificial production of what yeah. would naturally happen out in the wild. And there's a lot of farms that do that in the States. And some of those farms send those eggs down to Australia. But there are, and obviously all over the world, and there are some farms here as, as 
specifically, I'm not going to name names, but specifically one of the bigger companies, they do that themselves. So they then obviously grow the fish in indoor ponds to maturity to then transfer them out into the open ocean pens. And you'll typically have about twenty to 30,000 fish in one pen. Right. So just think about, first of all, the fish are in a non-natural environment where they normally wouldn't be swimming in because that's just not, yeah, they're you know, transient. like Atlantic they're, salmon yeah. are not meant to be in these and waters. And they're transient um, fish as well. Yeah. They're, they just keep on, you know, they've got like their cycle and certain coverage that they want to go through in their life cycle yeah, um, so, to be on the move, right? So when they're born, they, they travel, I don't know how long. And then once they're ready to reproduce, they head back to where they were actually born to reproduce. And so that's sort of, and they swim against the current. And so they have a lot of, you know, a lot of them obviously don't survive, but that's just nature. That's just the way that it is. But in these farms, they have, what is it? So in salmon production, you have to feed the salmon two kilos of feed to get one kilo of salmon. So it's not a very efficient way of producing food. So let's let's take a step back there. So we so salmon are carnivores. Yes. So like you know we have to work out mechanisms to feed land animals. You need to do the same with these farm fish. So if they're carnivores, then okay, what are you going to feed them? That's mm. the next question. So then they they feed them fish meal. So which is basically. Um, you know, a, a combination of other fish that they've fished? Not necessarily. It can be like they they create a meal that's kind of in some ways laboratory created to give them the best possible right. artificial, that they grow faster, that they produce a good tasting flesh and all of it. So sometimes you'll have things like chicken feathers, animal offcut, even just land animals like lamb, really? beef organs, blood, and there's a specific for salmon because they're giving it an unnatural diet. Their flesh is actually more of a grayish color. So what they've created is an artificial color called astaxanthin. And that pretty much you can select which color you would like your salmon to be. So they have like a scale of from super light to quite rich in color of like normal salmon. So it's kind of like that pinkish orange apricot color. So you add that into your feed so that the fish eat that and they essentially dye their their flesh that way because no one would buy it otherwise. Okay. So they obviously do still add fish, but I think they're going more artificial as the years go on so that they can remove that feed from their natural diet, in other words, so that what you would be getting, all of the omegas that you get from the fish that are eating, other smaller fish that are eating the algae. Yep you're not really getting that, which is then false advertising in many ways. Okay. Or you're feeding the the fish oil, which then you should just be taking the oil directly rather than consuming the fish to get the omega-3s. Gotcha. So it's been basically manipulated. <laughs> the feed has been completely changed to for scale, for scale of production. And I, I do remember now another example came to mind was um, prawn farming. Yeah. Uh, in Thailand, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting because, again, prawns are carnivores as well. So how they were feeding them was bottom trawling. So bottom trawling is basically 
imagine this a huge metal soccer goalpost. That's something that just came to my mind. A soccer <laughs> goalpost, right? That's this large metal thing that you put onto the bottom of the ocean, chain attached to your boat, and you pull it along the bottom of the ocean and basically digging up any life force that comes, like capturing any life force from the mm. bottom of the ocean, like through the dirt and everything and capturing everything in the path of that machine and this net. And um, it's crazy what they pull out of from like from the bottom of the ocean, like the type of juvenile fish and different organisms and this random concoction of sea life mm. um, that they then put into a machine, I believe. Mm. Uh, they sorted out a little bit and then they put that into a, this big grinding machine and basically grinded it into this like this this powdery sort of uh, think of like prawn pet food <laughs> and then so they use that because they can't actually sell what they're yes. bringing up you know it's not there's no commercial it, benefit exactly from, so they have to make capturing. some kind of money That's and right. it's peanuts and so they turn it into yeah so let's take the food. bottom let us take the bottom of the ocean and turn that into prawn food and that's what they're feeding the prawns as well. So, again, if you look at the food chain, how much impact that's having just for prawn farming. You know, we've talked about salmon farming, which is just pretty convoluted of how far we've gone away from their natural feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got prawn farming, which is just completely decimating a lot of that primary producer, primary consumer level mm-hmm. of the food chain. And I forgot to mention that the salmon are selectively bred, so they only actually farm females, yes, not right. males. There you go. Um, but like one thing that I didn't cover was how devastating that is to the ocean life around it. Yep. So many times there's been that the fish within these pens somehow escape and then they interact with the wild fish. And so you're actually ruining the natural habitat and the natural reproductive system of fish that would otherwise not have been in there. Yeah, and then you so know, genetically, like these fish are not as they don't grow as large. You know, they've been pumped a lot of the time with antibiotics, yeah, because and chemicals kept in such a um, confined space. Yeah, like they all have the equivalent of like one bathtub of water. Yeah, uh, in many cases, in so terms of area to move around and yeah. things like that. Um, and they're all, all swimming, feces all and, swimming yeah. around feces and and just chemicals and all of this stuff. And and look. Obviously, it's in the best interest of farmers to protect their stock, right? That's mm. fish stock. Um, so they do monitor the temperature of the water and things like that. But sometimes temperature changes and you can't control that. And that's led to a lot of mass deaths. I think in that example, 85,000. Yeah, in uh, May 2015. Yeah, in May 2015, we had 85,000 salmon. Was it here in Tasmania? Yeah. Um, died because of a, a huge shift in temperature. In that one day. A, in one day from an yeah. oversight, which is a huge loss at a commercial level, but huge loss for... Um, it was actually the, the oxygen levels dropped. Yeah. So the result, fish literally just suffocated They just death. suffocated and died, yeah. There was another situation where the pen itself wasn't secured properly and it broke. Mm. And then we had, what, 50,000 salmon escape from the farm and into the... Into the wild, yeah. Uh, going to go, re- you know, reproduce these artificial fish, going to interact with wild sea life, uh, which is really not good for our ecosystems as well. So, these, and, yeah, go on. I was gonna say, like, it's interesting because I remember hearing about that on the radio, and they were saying that you know all of the 
the keen fishermen go out there and catch your own salmon because this is your opportunity. There's an abundance of them out there. Yeah. And I didn't really process that at the time. Yeah. But now like doing the research and thinking about it, it's like, you know, take advantage of this free food that we've just not really thinking about the devastating effects that all these antibiotic fish and are not used to these environments are going out there and interacting with other sea life. So it's just, it was like, try and take advantage of this, yet don't really think about what's, how devastating this is. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, it's not... It's not something that is well-known or communicated, mm. the sea life, you know, and the journey of that and the impact of it. And, and I think that's why that's why this, this last couple of weeks have been ex- exciting and frustrating for us because of this increased awareness. And I'm not, I know a lot of marine biologists out there, you know, are so passionate about this. And I know some some of them have even commented to think, saying that like, well, m- maybe people just don't care. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's got to a point where there's so much destruction at this commercial level that maybe people just don't care. But actually, I think it's just a lack of awareness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's farm fishing. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, trade-offs for how that works because, we, again, we understand the goal is to um, not impact the natural sea life by bringing it into farms. So I understand the intent there. Sounds good in theory, but, of course, there are. it's not, not a perfect system. There are a lot of trade-offs by doing that as well. And there's and also, you know, there's... When you're looking at the sea life, you know, there's, for instance, there's seals that once they they come, they can sense that there's some action going around. Oh, near the fish farm. If farms, they come yeah. near the fish farm, it's like, oh, my God, I've hit the jackpot. Yeah, I have food for the rest of my life and all my friends and family. And they try and get in there. And so... Over the years, their farmers have shot bean bullets. Like they don't kill them, but you know they can go yeah, bean, blind. Yeah, bean bag bullets. I think they call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they can go deaf or blind because they are like they're designed to scare them. And they've put even crackers in the in the ocean to scare them off. They've even relocated them, you know. But then they're smart. They come back within 48 hours. So that's not a very effective way of getting them away. Yeah. So like, obviously you're going to try and protect your investment and do whatever you can to get them away from there. So I think it's illegal to kill them, but God knows what actually happens. And that's just like one predator Mm. for this particular species. Yes. So yeah, it's just, it's just not a very, when you think about it, it's just not a very, sanitized yeah. environment and like you it's very artificial and you eating that you know like i don't know yeah there's all sorts of wrong happening there <laughs> yeah but it's look it's something to 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 look into a little bit more and we'll, again we'll look, we'll link to some resources in the show notes for you to continue that journey because unfortunately like a lot of our shelves um i think when we it's 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 approximately a 50-50 split at this point between wild caught and farmed fish that's available generally to the public you know at the point of sale so you know when you're making that decision or that choice undoubtedly you're going to come up against that type of source about about farmed fish and i think and farmed fish is only going to like yeah. the industry is only going to get bigger and bigger absolutely so so that's the commercial fishing we just wanted to wrap up this conversation by touching on recreational fishing because it's not something that is discussed a lot during this time of this documentary and 
um, when everyone's thinking about fishing in the ocean. Because when you look at, okay, from a sustainability standpoint, well, actually, let's, before we go there, let's look at it a cultural standpoint. Recreational fishing, fishing as a hobby, as a sport, or as it's often referred to as angling, like the angler community, much like hiking, camping, rock climbing, canoeing, is an outdoor activity that has been passed down from generation to generation and is a very, very passionate community. Like I knew some people who loved fishing when I was growing up. And, you know, that's what I thought about all week until they can finally go fishing on the weekend. So this is a really... I'm very, I suppose I'm trying to be sensitive to that community because of it's it's just something they've built into what they do. On top of that, when you think of the intent there, there's definitely a conservation approach to a lot of these angling community. There are, whilst I don't think you need a license in every state around the world for uh, recreational fishing, there are certain rules in terms of ensuring that you can only catch X amount of fish or this type of fish. And I'm pretty sure the angling community is very good at holding each other accountable to that. You know what I mean? Because they, you know, they're spending so much time in nature and enjoying nature that they want to kind of protect it and ensure that it stays the way it is because they're the ones out there and experiencing it. So I can understand that perspective in their desire to sort of be one with nature and, and protect it whilst being able to fish. But then when you look into, I suppose, the impact of this activity, what do we find? So th- there's an estimate of around 700 million Anglers. Anglers worldwide. Yeah. And about 50 million of those are in the States. Okay, there you go. So that's like a, it's quite a large number for Mm. a hobby, right? For something that you casually do. And I suppose when you look at the impact of, hey, I'm just going to go fishing on the weekend. I catch three fish and I eat it myself. While there's a vegan I don't feel like that's an ethical act as such because, you know, you're killing a fish against their desire to live, which is still objectively unethical if it's not necessary, you know, particularly if it's recreational. It's not necessary. But out of all the different types of fishing that we've seen, commercial, farming, different types of approaches to fishing, you know, flinging out a rod and catching a couple of fish and then consuming it yourself is far more sustainable than those other methods. But you going down to your local fish shop and just blindly buying fish. So that I respect. However, at 700 million anglers, and let's just use some rough, vague numbers here. I don't know how much fish they, they all catch on average, but let's just be conservative and say they all catch five fish per year. For the whole year. That's still 3.5 billion fish caught and killed from this industry. Recreational industry. Yeah, from the recreational industry. So like, so the act of one may not seem like a huge impact. Mm. But 3.5 billion fish collectively mm. sort of changes the scale. Yeah, it's, it's going to, you know, that will only amplify the trillions caught and killed by the commercial industry, right? It just amplifies that. So it is something to think about in terms of just impact because we have depleted our oceans so much, we're in minus. 
Mm. And, you know, we've got, like, it's amazing. If we leave our oceans alone, like, it has the ability to replenish, but it's going to take a long time to unwind that. And I think even the angling community is playing a role in that. Um, even though it is a more sustainable option, it, it's it's still a factor uh, mm. when you look at the the global scale of this as well. So... And it's not, you know, like we haven't even touched on the fact that there are certain regions of the world that they need to eat fish to survive. Yes. So that when it comes like there, I walk away from the conversation because I think that that's a legitimate reason. Mm. If you have nothing else to eat and, you know, you can't grow, you know, there's certain parts of the world where it's just like for you to get fresh produce is next to impossible eating fish is one of the easiest things for you to consume then that's fine but i think that's an argument that so many people use when 99.99% of the time that's not their situation yeah they're making that argument to justify their own behavior and so that's not the argument that we're making here we're just saying that everybody that is obviously listening to this podcast that has a choice, they have a choice whether or not they should be eating And we fish. know because we can look at our podcast statistics and see that... Where the people are listening the majority from. majority <laughs> is from USA, <laughs> Australia, Canada, UK, Germany. Like, we, we, we understand that if you're listening to this, it's likely you're in that privileged situation where you're not eating fish out of necessity, life or death. Yeah. Um, And so the devastating thing is when you're in that situation and yet because of the appetite of the human race for more fish is that commercial fishing is turning into the areas where the coastal regions the coastal regions and areas where people need fish to survive and they're taking away their food so that other people can consume it this is where it starts to go a little bit pear-shaped in my opinion because you're literally taking food away from people that have nothing else to eat yeah or have very little option of other things that they can eat you know, these fishermen are desperate. Like they don't know what else to do because once they were able to catch, let's say, 50 fish in a month and now there's not much left because the commercial fisheries come in and literally swoop everything possible in that in the ocean. Yeah. So that's in some ways that's like the reality of what commercial fishing is doing in, in areas where it's needed. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, anyway, that's, a <laughs> that's us sort of brain dumping some of our thoughts and, and, and findings on, on this topic that we're very new to and uh, we look forward to learning more about over time. And, and now that we have more awareness, I suppose, you know, we can better understand the lingo. We can better understand even just from a consumer standpoint, just how seafood is positioned and it's described at the point of sale, if there's any progress in the industry, I think it's it's now I'm really curious to see how that progresses and what measures they're taking for fish farming and wild caught fish and 
what, you know, what people are claiming. So I think it's a really, it's, it's an interesting, it's a very scary, a very devastating sort of area. But, you know, from a vegan standpoint, it's like, wow, I mean... There's just a lot of death being caused by this industry. We didn't even no, touch no, on no other animals die more. Not, not yeah. like it's than than these sea animals, and it's just um, scary. You're going to say something, sorry? Yeah. So one thing that we didn't touch on, which is quite important, which I think a lot of people uh, have an argument about, is that fish don't feel pain. And that couldn't be further from the truth. So if you want to learn more about that, we have written about it in our post and we've linked to multiple different um, articles and videos about it as well. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that, it's, um, you know, a lot of the arguments is, is, is then, I think there's a consensus that they, they do feel pain, but then people take it further and say, well, they don't feel pain in the same way as a human does. And it's like, oh, okay, that's... You're just trying to find yeah. holes at this point. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's always something, um, you know, people might use in, in these conversations and I understand that. But I think that just goes, it just goes back to devaluing sentience. The life, yeah. Yeah, devaluing sentience. A life sentience. is a life is a life. Exactly you know? right, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it, it just goes back to, you know, how we treat land animals. It's the same thing. We just devalue, devalue, devalue. Mm. So we're so far disconnected from what this sentient being is that we don't feel the guilt uh, when we make the decision to consume them. So, you know, fish are remarkable. And we know and the thing is we still don't know that much about particularly the ocean and, and what exists down there. Yeah. Um, there's still so much to find out and, and what we're learning about them all the time and the complexities of their biology. And all I can say is that human beings struggle to empathize with each other. Like sometimes you and I won't see eye to eye about how we should feel about something. Yeah. Or like, yeah. you know, if I'm feeling certain pain, you can't relate because you're not feeling that pain. Yeah. yeah. So like if, if you and I can't relate to each other mm. consistently, you know, <laughs> what chance do we have to make a justification that they don't, fish don't feel pain in the same way that we do? Mm. Well, we can't even really get, that, get to that point with, with other human beings. So anyway, it's it's interesting, um, nevertheless, and uh, I suppose for you, I, I, I'm I think it's really fascinating if you go down and start reading as many labels as you can. You know, if you do eat fish out or you do want to continue consuming fish out, uh, just ask the question: Where is it from? What is it? And how was it caught? And to see, to see if there's any any awareness even from restaurants or takeaways and of where people. this come from, and and I think. You know, we rely so much on these NGOs and governments and we need to, 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 to make this change. But there is some things that we can do as consumers as well to sort of change the mm. demand and the, the demand of, of fish. And, and, and that's my hope. I'm optimistic, but I know that population is just going to grow and fish, demand for fish is just going to grow. And it's probably going to be really dark, but I want to look the other way and I hope, and I hope that we can start to make changes. And I think, yeah, the more people that ask the questions, the more power the consumers gain and then the people supplying that fish, for instance, or seafood, whatever it is, start to wonder themselves like, oh, well, our patrons won't eat it unless we know this information. If they don't trust us and if we're not transparent with how it was farmed or if it was wild caught, how it was caught, all of that, what you just mentioned, 
it's just about that transparency, you know, at the end of the day. Yes. Absolutely. Are we done? I think we are. I mean, we could talk about this for another two hours, but I think we we should put a nice bow on it yeah. and call it a day. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you if you've made it this far. Thank you so much <laughs> for listening. And um, We hope you found it interesting and informative. Yes. And would love to, to hear your thoughts. I mean, reach out on... On, on social or, or email, uh, we've got that information in the show notes on your little podcast up there. You know, reach out and let us know what you think um, because there's going to be different perspectives, diff- different experiences from around the world. But um, yeah, I think it's important for us to share our story and particularly what's happening here mm. in, in our backyard, which is really eye-opening. It's like, it's one thing to watch a documentary like Seaspiracy, which is meant for the masses, and then you start digging and you're like, oh locally yeah this is what's going on yeah uh, and i think everyone's going to have a different local example mm. and i think sharing that information is is really valuable for everybody yeah so um thank you cool thanks guys thanks for tuning in and we'll chat to you next time sounds good bye bye